The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. That was a night we all went out. And there was a big group of us, maybe a dozen or more. It's the summer of 1974. A fun night out with the girls ends in violence for Carol Rofsted. The last person to turn out a light, the attack came a half an hour later. The back door had a window and um, just broke the window and it fell on carpet. So, you know, we never heard. Um, And then just could open the door. Whoever broke into the Delta Zeta house that night seemed to know where they were going. And there was a closed door on his right, which was my bedroom, and a closed door on his left, which was Carol's bedroom. And how not to get caught. The president of the sorority tried to call the police, and all the telephone wires had been cut. No one got a look at the intruder, except for his combat-style boots and army green pants. She said he was dressed, we call him green jeans, because he was dressed like in a green workout. Only cursory reports still exist in normal police files. We can't be sure there was ever a real investigation. I, I went through everything in, in the, uh, the two FOI packages, a total of 140-some pages or whatever, and they never followed up on going back to the bar with a green shirt. I always said that person is going to think that she can that that she can identify him. I feel like he's going to come back and 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 try and hurt her again. Sixteen months later, Carol Rofsted was dead. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested charged or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofsted. I was never one of the guys. I was admired because I was really dedicated to my job. I took it seriously. One of the things about being a cop is you can do as much or as little as you want. Because nobody can tell you if a guy goes running past your car with a shotgun, nobody can tell you you saw him. You know, it's simple. You just say, hey, sorry, Sergeant, I had my head turned. I was looking at a green Buick. I didn't see the guy with the gun. Um, This was 1969. It's right after the 68 Democratic Convention. They said, Seibel. Star 7267, 21st District. They sent me from lily white, quiet, boring, dumb, white people north side, and sent me to the middle of the frickin' ghetto. With, and it was the best frickin' thing that ever happened to me in my life, except for my children being born. Um, if I had been born poor and black in the projects on the south side or the west side of Chicago, I would have been the most wrongdoing motherfucker God ever created. 
All right. You guys ready? Just silence your cell phone, George. Sure. That's George Seibel. You may already have a picture in your head, but I guarantee you're wrong. He's on the small, wiry side. Seems to love colorful socks and tennis shoes. Would you be afraid of him in a dark alley? I bet not. Would you be able to outsmart him? Not likely. If you're a bad guy, this is the last person that you want coming after you. Because George is relentless. We would look into leads. We'd find people. Um, you know, we talked to people that knew her. Um, we talked to people that went to school there. We put this thing together and we put a pretty good dent in it. There's a lot of pride and ego. Sometimes police don't reach out and don't ask for help because they think they can solve it themselves. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so Chapter 2 Cold Case Heat I'm organizing a stack of old photocopies about an inch and a half thick. March 13th, 1970. That was the day George Seibel got his police gun and badge. Within 10 days, he was being recognized for catching a thief. By his second year on the force, he had hit his stride. He scored six more commendations in a single month. The general public thinks that homicide investigation is laborious and slow-moving and whatever else. Not where this boy rolled because everything is, is, is this fast, you know? And I used to get in trouble when I was on the tactical team because I was overstepping our bounds in, in doing follow-up investigations on murders and stuff. And these homicide detectives just freaking wanted me dead, you know? Um, if you were to dissect uh, a year's arrest reports in any given jurisdiction, you're probably going to find out that between 5 and 8% of the entire population of that police station probably made between 75 and 85% of all the arrests. The other 95% of people basically just go about the business. Hey, let's be careful out here. It was such, it was such an, a natural high. The adrenaline was just unfreaking real, you know, and uh, it was just absolutely amazing. And I loved it, you know. But if it's cool with you, I'd like to tell you about two or three things that happened 
that's kind of shaped what I ended up being. So I was still in uniform. I was working with a guy even newer than me on the, on the midnight shift and um, in the summertime. We got a call of a sick kid. And so we go knock on the door and um, everybody's cleaning up inside and whatever and, and so on because there's all kinds of dope going on. And there's a baby that's uh, in, in a dirty blanket and she said, my baby's sick. Said, what happened? She said, he's sick. And so I, I picked, I picked the baby up uh, off the couch and he was like six months old, little, little boy. And so I, I intuitively knew something was horribly wrong because when I picked him up, there was no reaction, you know. And we, we went racing off to Mercy Hospital. And so we called ahead. We said, we got, a, we got an infant here or something wrong. Then the doctor in the emergency room called us in. And what happened was that it took him a while, but they got the blanket off the baby. And what had happened was the mother ironed the baby. There was a perfect blistered imprint of the iron. What, what had happened was that um, she wanted to go out and party and the baby was standing in the way. So she, she, uh, she, she uh, force-fed the kid Jack Daniels straight and then the kid went into convulsions because he was six months old. And that pissed her off, so she was ironing to uh, her some to put to wear to go out. So she just ironed the kid. So um, it's fucked up, and um, so it's it's really weird though, or maybe it's not weird, but that was like. 52, 53 years ago, half a century ago, and um, it still brings tears to my eyes, you know. You know, how does one reconcile that, you know? But see, when you're a cop, you're not allowed to cry, you know. I, I'm pretty sure that 
without ever consciously thinking about it, that, you know, that had to have done a lot to shape, you know, who, who I became and, and how I pleased and whatever else. When, when the crazy shit that happens starts to make sense, it's time to get the F away, you know. Imagine a new start. Imagine a new career. Morton College. Imagine what you can do. When I made detective, I went back to school and I went from like 30, 30 credit hours to a master's degree in four years. My last semester of grad school, um, the department chair asked me if I wanted to teach. I said, teach? He said, yeah. He says, I mean, like, talk about being a cop? I said, yeah. I said, I can talk about being a cop. And so I, I, started, I started teaching. George taught and wrote about what he knew best. In 2001, before it was a reality TV rage, he founded the Morton College Institute for Cold Case Solutions. Students that, that had been um, in the classroom with me became cops themselves and then became cop bosses because I was doing this for a long time. Hey, we've got this case. Would you look at it and tell us what you think? We actually got a couple of them right. And um, as, as you can imagine, um, my, my buddies said thank you off the record. And the chiefs took all the credit <laughs> and whatever. And I, I kind of got let up. But it was, it was cool. And... And I would just tell my students at the end of the hour before next class meeting, go find a cool case. Maybe we can do some good on it, you know. And their eyes would light up and woo, you know. And so a couple of days later, somebody somebody came in with a picture of, of this darling blonde-haired child, you know. And, and, and someone said, George, this is the oldest thing on the Illinois website. Uh, one of the girls that um, also uh, went to Morton College, she actually found the case. And we, uh, we as an institute together, dug into it. And so I said, how the hell do I know about that? And I, I, I didn't remember it at all. But I knew there was something in the back of my mind. It was 2008. The victim in this case, the pretty blonde child, was our sorority girl, 21-year-old Carol Rofsted. Remember, she'd been assaulted as she slept in the Delta Zeta house in July of 1974. When Mr. Green Jeans came in? Mm-hmm. 
I remember Mr. Green Jeans. Now that you said that, I haven't thought about that for 100 years, right? When the cold case class started asking questions in Chicago in 2008, there had been no activity in the case file for a dozen years. We're here to talk to Carol Rostad's family. Normal police visited the family. What was her reaction, or do you remember her mental state after she came home from that attack? Well, she handled herself pretty good. Mm-hmm. Underneath, she was scared to death. Was, oh, yeah, yeah she had her, and every time the shade hit the window, she would flinch in her sleep. One time she came out of the bathroom, and it was dark, and we were hiding around the corner, and we jumped out, and she would just couldn't stop freaking out from it, you know. She was afraid underneath, but she didn't like to show it. And she was determined she wanted to go back to school, even though my dad didn't want her to go back. She said it was an isolated thing. It was always in my head that this guy knows who she is, and she does not know who he is. Uh-huh. And, and um, something's going to happen at some point. Seventeen months later, in December 1975, Carol was dead. I'm always looking for things that are coincidences because I don't believe in coincidences, never. There was never any big crime in, you know, in, in normal Illinois. When something like that happens, it's like, wow. She lived in the Chicago suburb, as did I. So, you know, we would take the train home on holidays and together, which is what we were going to do on Christmas, because we both stayed and worked. Right now it's 30 at Midway, 30 at O'Hare, and 29 on Chicago's lakefront. If you plan to do some last-minute holiday shopping, yesterday an estimated 1 million people filled the State Street and North Michigan Avenue shopping districts. I worked a few stores down from her. I think it was a Monday night we were, that was the night that the stores were open until like 8 o'clock or something. We were going to be going home the next night, and we went down to the cellar, which is a was a local bar, right on the same block that where we worked. Basically, it was a storefront um, in downtown Normal. Upstairs was the uh, diner. You could go in there and have breakfast. And then, of course, downstairs, they had the bar. And um, we were looking for these guys that we had been, you know, kind of partied with over the weekend. We knew they were good friends. They weren't like dating guys or anything. Just a bunch of buddies who were local. And um, they weren't there. So we turned around and walked out and then uh, walked about a block and split up. When the next day when I was at work, and you know, we were both going to go home and pack for the train after work. And um, I went in to get her at lunch. He said she never showed up. Back home in Elk Grove, out-of-town guests were arriving. Yeah, Christmas Eve. And the Rofsted family was awaiting Carol. I 
I was wrapping her Christmas present on the dining room table and the doorbell rang. It was the Elk Grove police telling us Carol was attacked and uh, asking if we uh, wanted a police escort down to Peoria because she was flown, you know, helicoptered there. They figured she had been laying there from about um, 10 or 10.30 until um, a woman walked by and heard a moan and discovered her. She was lying by a bush, which wasn't immediately visible when you went past. So that was about lunchtime. So over 12 hours, she had been laying outside. She was in a coma, never regained consciousness. A priest had just walked out of the room and everything, and it was just, oh, it was just horrible. It was all over. She had died. How did the news come? Called me. Yeah. How did he know? Well, that's the interesting part about the whole story. Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. Within hours of Carol being found, he called a sorority sister and said Carol was beaten and almost killed. How ironic that he knew exactly that. When did you get the news? Um, he called to tell me that, you know, because he, he lived in normal, that he had heard about Carol and wanted to make sure that I knew because she's my sorority sister and da da da. And I went, how we got my phone number at home? I had no idea because it's not like there was a cell phone or anything, but you know, those things were easy to do those in those days. Um, so when he called, he was the one to tell me that Carol was hurt and that um, she had a head injury and that they're rushing her to Peoria for surgery. And I, you know, and so I said, what are you talking about? And then he kind of basically told me that she was hit with a railroad tie and she was found laying on the side of the house um, in the snow and that a person found her. Um, She was kind of unconscious and somebody was walking by the house and heard her moan. And that was the person that got a hold of the police that got the ambulance that then rushed her right to Peoria for surgery. After his decades of police and scholarly work, Seibel the investigator was hearing clues that jumped out of this woman's story. A common analogy is arsonists go to their fires. Just about the time that Sherlock Holmes uh, became a known investigator, um, it was an acknowledged fact that um, one of the most condemning things that can ever take place 
is when a suspect knows something that only the killer could have known. And so I, you know, I thanked him for calling me and then I immediately called the police to find out what was going on. And they were like, how do you know all of this? And I said, called me and told me all of this. And they said, half the stuff you're telling us, we haven't released to anybody. And I went, well, he, he knows all of that. Why do you think he knows all of that? And they said, we don't know why he knows all of that. You know, I kept saying, knew. Knew more than what he was telling you guys. You know, I knew he had no feelings in his hands from, from Nam. And I... You know, and just that one encounter, whether he was still pissed at her or whatever. I, I don't know the rest of it. I just suspected it to be him because he had that grudge. Carol insults a guy with a raging temper. He, w- he was pissed. Very quickly pissed. She's attacked in July. I think he, I think he was stalking her. And killed the following December. To George Seibel, that's a coincidence on steroids. Anybody would, would figure certain things played into it, and then they just got dismissed. I know that the two women who got phone calls from him, uh, the first one is your, your friend uh, was beaten and almost killed, and then an hour or two after she was pronounced dead, there was a second call to the other woman, that said uh, that she that she passed away. Well, you you don't have to be the most suspicious dude or dudette in the world to um, automatically um, take somebody really really seriously that has inside information that hadn't been announced or published or anything to anyone. Order of events can often have a lot to say about motives. So says the teacher who trained future cops on cold case investigation. Which brings us back to Morton College. Remember that first impression George had when a student brought him the Rofsted case? How the hell do I know about that? When his student shared a sketch of the prime suspect, it all came back. It was probably 75 or 6. Somebody from Normal called Chicago at the detective headquarters and said, you have somebody to go check somebody, see if you can dig up something and see if you can find this guy. And um, we were asked to go and see if was at a certain address in downtown Grange, yeah. We, we just drove out to LaGrange one day, and it seems to me that there was like a, uh, a, a cheap sporting goods apparel store on the ground level, and there was an apartment above that, and was living there. I'm sure we talked to the uh, LaGrange police. As a courtesy, we would have done that. and. I know that nobody said anything about his 
fitting the description of anyone wanted for a crime or anything else. So we reported back and that was the end of it. So fast forward, oh, 80s, 90s, 2000, fast forward about 28 years. Once I saw the picture uh, of the composite sketch, then we got a picture of him from the newspaper. I said, I looked for that guy 30 freaking years ago. Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. He would start bothering girls, women, um, and uh, we would wind up kicking him out. This guy was trouble. The detail work in, in that sketch is remarkable. One of the condemning things about is that he looked very much like the composite. But if the composite was worthless, then it's back to square one. It's still on the website. And they're still misleading people. Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator Demetria Kaladinos. Voiceover recreation Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kalademos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kalademos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories. Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. <laughs>